Amen. You guys ready tonight? All right, John 5. We will finish chapter 5 tonight. So I just want to say something before I get into the message. I know there's just a few of us here tonight, and maybe some of you weren't here on Sunday. I just want to just speak my heart about Sunday. I just felt like that the Lord was so faithful on Sunday. It was so very good. I had been praying for a couple weeks about that message on Sunday. And I knew in my heart that this, this service was going to be a significant service. But a significant service, an impactful service, is not up to me. I can't, I can't make a big impact and I can't make it significant. That's up to the Lord and His Spirit to, to do that. And just from the beginning of the video testimony all the way through to the end, I just felt that the Lord showed up, His Spirit was here, and He... He impacted my heart, and I pray he impacted your heart to those that were here. And I just felt, I know it's kind of, I'm going to say this, but I, I, I believe it's true. I, I just, I felt like that that service, at the end of that service, that the transition was done. As far as I'm, as far as I'm concerned, we have uh, about seven more Sundays that Pastor Renee has. And I'm really, I'm really only, only going to preach one, once more from now until March the 11th will be my first Sunday as senior pastor. Uh, but I felt like, and I knew that in advance, and so I felt like I got to get it all out January 7th. Everything I want to say in my heart about the church and my heart for it. Um, and so, I, but I just feel like Pastor Nate is going to preach. He's going to have several messages to end his time here, and we're going to love it, and we're going to encourage him, and we're going to have a great final service March the 4th, and we're going to celebrate God's faithfulness on March the 4th, and then we're just going to keep going. I'm going to show up March 11th, and hopefully you show up, and a lot more people show up, and we'll just, I'm going to open the Bible, and we're going to teach it, and we'll, 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 first we'll have worship, and then we'll have a break, and then we'll pray for people, then we'll have a break, and then I'll preach. We'll have announcements first, probably, then I'll preach, and have an altar call, and then we'll go home. We'll just, and we'll do that the next Sunday, and God will be faithful, and God will add to his church daily those that are being saved, and that's what I'm excited about. Amen? Amen. Okay. John chapter 5. So this is uh, just a really extended section here in John 5 of uh, Jesus declaring his deity, declaring who he is, that he is the son of God, that he's not just a good teacher, a prophet sent from God, but he is God in the flesh. He's equal with God and he only does the works of God and, and he came to do miracle working power and and just he, he, it's, it's the longest section of Jesus declaring his deity. And he's speaking to um, unbelieving Jews. He's speaking to Jews who did not believe his testimony. If you remember back, you had the miracle that he performed on the Sabbath for the lame man that was lame for 38 years. And so all of this dialogue, all this speech that Jesus is giving from verses 17 through 47 is his reaction to their reaction of him performing the miracle on the Sabbath and their anger over it. It says even that they were ready to kill him because of that, because of him performing a miracle on the Sabbath. And Jesus never broke the law. He never broke the law. It, the, the law of not doing work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees and the scribes, they perverted that law and made it into something that it should not be. They added to it and twisted it. And so so Jesus didn't break the spirit of the law of the Sabbath. He did good on the Sabbath. It wasn't illegal by God's law to do good on the Sabbath. I mean, God is God, and God is good, and God would want us to be good and, and to, for people to be healed on the Sabbath day, a day of rest, and a day to honor him. And so he in no way broke the law, but he broke their tradition. He broke their false interpretation of the law. And as a result of it, he exposed their hypocrisy. Because he exposed their hypocrisy, they were angry at him and wanted to kill him. And so this is why he goes into this dialogue with them and is explaining to them, hey, I am not just who you think I am. God works on the Sabbath. And I work on the Sabbath because we're one, because we're equal. And you have no problem with the Father working on the Sabbath. I don't know if you remember back two weeks ago, I said that the Pharisees and the scribes, they were okay with, with God the Father working on the Sabbath because they knew he has to sustain the universe. So God got a pass. <laughs> and so Jesus is saying, the Father works and I work. 
So it's okay if I work because we're, we're one. And it, it, would, it would have blown their mind. It was blasphemous for them, for Jesus to be comparing himself to God, calling himself equal with God, calling God his father. And so this is a long section, and I covered the main heart of the section in my first message. And then Brother Freddie followed up, and I, I don't really know what he said. I'm sure it was awesome and powerful, and he followed up where I left off and said some really great things about the deity of Jesus. And so as I was preparing, I was thinking, man, we're just going to hit it again because it's really the same subject, but how can we go about it? What can, what can, we, what can we dig out here? I, I don't want to just keep hitting the same subject uh, over and over again, but I, I feel like that there's some nuggets of truth here that we can bring out about uh, the deity of Christ and, and what Jesus is trying to say here. So before we get into the verses, verses uh, 30 through 47, I just want to read a scripture. This is 2 Corinthians 13, 1. It says this, this is the third time, Apostle Paul speaking, I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is Paul the Apostle speaking to the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth was a crazy church. They had crazy church. They had people doing all kind of crazy stuff within the church, people acting foolish, people living in sexual sin, and this was a church that Paul had to continually try to bring help to. They didn't know how to manage their services. People were out of control. There was rampant sin within the church that he's trying to bring correction and bring guidance. And, and so this, what he's saying here is that when there is sin within the church, within the body of Christ, with the brother and sister, when there's sin in a leader's life, that if there's a charge that's going to be brought against somebody, it needs to be established through the mouth of two or three witnesses. It can't just be some random person that comes up and says, so-and-so did this, and this person's walking in sin. Well, hey, we need to follow that up. There needs to be a procedure. If there's an accusation made, you need to follow it through. Who, who are the witnesses? Can, can, can we confirm that? And if it's true, then, then there, you know, there needs to be church discipline where the person is sat down and has is, and, and is tried to be helped and brought to repentance and mentored and trained and discipled. And so that, the heart of this in 2 Corinthians 13 it's found in Deuteronomy 17. It's the same pattern there, same principle that if something's going to be established as to be true and right, there's going to be something true. If there's an accusation or something that needs to be proven right or wrong, it must be established through the mouth of two or three witnesses. And so based on that principle, I believe Jesus takes this next section of Scripture And he brings not just two or three witnesses, he brings four witnesses. He says, I'm going to give you four witnesses and testimonies to my deity. I just spent this section here telling you that I'm God. I'm equal with God. Me and the Father are one. And I only do the works of the Father. And I only do what he, I see him do. And I only say what I hear him say. And, and so I've been testifying about myself. But now I'm about to bring in four witnesses that have testified about me, and then now it's going to be on you. You may can discredit me. You may can say I'm just a lunatic. You may can say I'm a liar. But I have four credible witnesses that when you hear their testimony, what I'm about to say about their testimony, then it's going to be on you to decide if they're true, if they're right, or if they're false and they're wrong. And so this is what we're going to unpack. There's four witnesses. And I, I titled the message, Trustworthy Witnesses. And these witnesses... These trustworthy witnesses, these four trustworthy witnesses that Jesus brings out, they're bulletproof witnesses. This is an open and shut case here. These witnesses show up. You, you know, you ever seen crime dramas and you get this, like, witness that is, the, the, you know, the prosecution or the, or, or, the, or the defense, it's their ace in the hole. Jesus had four aces in the hole here that he was going to lean on to show these unbelieving Jews, unbelieving that he was the Messiah, show them Prove to him that he really is God. He's the son of God. So what, who, who are the witnesses? Let's look, at, let's look at the text. John 5, and we'll look at thir- verses 33 through 35. Excuse me, start in verse 30. Let's go to verse 30, and, uh, and we'll go all the way down through 35. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, 
My testimony is not true. So this is what I was just saying. He's saying, look, if I just testify about myself, you can just discredit it. And, and, I, and he's saying, I get that. I understand that. But there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And, and right here, he's speaking about the Father God. And then he switches right here. And here's the first witness. You sent to John. And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John, was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So who's the first witness? First witness is the burning lamp. I could have put John the Baptist, but I wanted to make it look cute. The burning lamp. He's <laughs> the burning lamp is the first witness. And the burning lamp, as Jesus described John the Baptist, a burning lamp. He's the first witness. Now, who was John the Baptist? He was the greatest that was ever born, right? That's what Jesus said about him, that there would be no one greater than John the Baptist being born besides himself, right? And, and this is how the Jews re- believed about John the Baptist. He was considered a prophet amongst their people, and they respected his opinion. They respected his view. They esteemed him highly. And so for, him, for Jesus to say that this is the first witness, they would have understood what he was saying. They would have, they would have they would have known that John was significant. He wasn't just this, this witness that Jesus was bringing out there that really had no credibility. This was a highly esteemed man for the religious Jew. And so for Jesus to point John out and to not only point him out, but to say, you have believed his light. You have followed his light. You have believed him. He, like he is, Jesus is acknowledging what he knows about them is true. He, he is communicating something to them that is not confusing. They believe John the Baptist. They have followed him. They look to him as somebody that is a forerunner for the Messiah. They understood that. Now, they just don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so if you remember back in John chapter 1, we have, in John 1, we had a long section of John the Baptist testifying about who Jesus was because he was the forerunner. So we, we, we went through that long section of him testifying to who Jesus was. And what's interesting is, is that the section we're going to read is that there was, within the Sanhedrin, they sent a delegation to go and seek out John the Baptist to settle once and for all, who are you, John the Baptist? Who are you, a prophet? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Where would you come from? What are you all about? You need to tell us. And this is what we're going to pick up. This is, we're going to see John's testimony. It's John 1, 19 through 23. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests, this delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, well, then who are you? I mean, because we believe that you're at least one of these guys. We recognize you're from God. We believe you're a prophet. And we need an answer to give, those, to give to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? This is so, I love this. What do you say about yourself? And this is what we should say. When somebody says, who are you? And, they say, and, and you say, hey, I'm not anything special. I'm not a prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm not this great, high, influential person. I'm, I'm nobody. Well, well, then what do you say about yourself? Here's what I say. Here's what I say about myself. Here's what you say about yourself. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. That's what we say. We come in the spirit of John the Baptist. And somebody asks, who are you? Who, who are you about? Who are you about? What are you here for? Uh, you could say, well, I'm here to work on my job. I'm here to raise my family. I'm here to be a good spouse. I'm, I'm here to be a good person in the community. And those could all be true and good things. But, but to the core of who you are, who are you? What do you stand for? And that's, see, see the, this, this delegation from the Jews, they were after, what's your, what's, your, what's your title? Who are you? What do you do? And John the Baptist said, no, you've got it wrong. It's that what I do is based upon who I am and why God sent me. I am one. I am the, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And they asked him, well, then, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Messiah, the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, why are you, why are you baptizing? 
John answered them, I baptize with water. And this is so key. But among you stands one that you do not know. What was he saying there? The Messiah is here. He's here. The Messiah is here. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So what is Jesus saying here in, in, these, to, in, he, in this description of this first witness, John the Baptist, this burning lamp? What he's saying is, Jesus is saying to the Jews, you won't believe my testimony. You don't believe what I'm telling you. You are hung up on the fact that I healed on the Sabbath. You overlook the fact that there was a man that was crippled for 38 years. And I healed him. And you're so hung up on your religious tradition that you can't see beyond the end of your nose to recognize who I really am. You don't believe me. That's what he's saying to the Jews. Kind of like that in a paraphrase. You, you, don't, you won't believe my testimony. But a man whom you do believe speaks for God, he believes in me. So this was a a rebuke of them he was rebuking them he was saying you won't believe me and you should believe me look at what i did look at look at who i am but a man who you do believe speaks for god he believes in me he baptized me and you won't you won't believe him you won't believe him so this is the first witness this is the first witness john the baptist And you know, as we go through these four witnesses, it is a sobering reality as we go through that people make decisions against all the evidence about Jesus, about who God is. It doesn't matter how much evidence people get. There's some people, they are just going to reject because they have not had the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit yet in their heart. And this, this, is, this is what I feel as I was writing this and studying this and, and, and going over, and over my notes. As we went through each witness, I thought, how hard-hearted could these religious Jews really be? I mean, can you imagine? You would think that would never happen today if Jesus came and he didn't come to Jerusalem. He didn't come to the Jews. He came amongst us and he walked amongst us. You would think we would never not believe that he was God. But we would. Too, and, and there's reasons why, and we'll, we'll get to that towards the end of this message. But John is the first witness, this burning lamp. And as, as I was thinking about John, I, I thought about this. This is a, a neat picture here. You know, Jesus is the light, and in him there is no darkness, no, no darkness at all, as it says in First John. He is the light. He didn't, he did, he's, not, he's not like a part of the light, and he, just, he doesn't just provide light here or there he is the light he is just like you say god is love he is love he is light he is grace it is a part of who he is he is light and john as jesus describes him is simply a lamp that houses that light right so that's who we are jesus is the light and i'm just a house that carries the light of god wherever i go think think about that in your life you are a lamp and wherever you go, just think of, when I thought about this, I thought, thought about an oil lamp, right? And, 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 and we're filled with the oil of the Spirit. And that lights and when it sets a, a blaze. When that spark is there, it sets a blaze, our, our light. But Jesus is the light. It's the Spirit's power within us. And wherever we go, we house the light of God. And we can go, we go in, the, in the spirit of John the Baptist, proclaiming that Jesus is who he says that he is and was, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he's resurrected, he is the way, the truth, and the life. So this is the first witness, John the Baptist, the burning lamp. So let's keep going. What's, who's, who's the second witness, or, or, or I should say, what is the second witness? Let's look at John five thirty six. Jesus continues. It's the second witness. But the testimony that I have, the, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So now he just rebukes him for saying, you don't believe John, though you believe he hears from God and he speaks of me. You don't even believe him. But my next testimony, my next witness is greater than that of John. And so what, what's the next witness? What's the next testimony? For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the second witness, the second testimony to who Christ is, is his miraculous works. The miraculous works of Jesus Christ. And look, look, at, look at how powerful that is. He just rebukes them about John. 
the rejection of John's testimony, even though they claim to really believe him. And he says, there's a greater testimony than John. It's the miracles I've been doing. Turning water into wine, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out devils, feeding the multitudes, doing miracles. The miracles of Jesus continually caused people to recognize that Jesus was not simply a man. And we see it throughout the Gospels. There were multiple people, crowds of people, individual people, who would declare, he has to be from God. Look at what he's doing. Somebody can't do these things and not be from God. But these religious Jews, they kept rejecting. They kept saying, no, he can't be. And what did, they, what did the Jews eventually say about Jesus' miraculous power? From Satan. From Satan. They said, he is casting out demons by Beelzebub, by the spirit of Satan. That was, that was the depth of their, of their, of their unbelief. It was at the lowest level. If you call good evil and evil good, that's the depth. That's the lowest you can go. If you turn good on its head and say that evil is good and good is evil, that's bad. That's the lowest of the low. And this is where the religious Jews were at and where they were getting to. But what about a man named Nicodemus? What did he testify concerning the works that Jesus was performing? John 3, 1 through 2. Now, there was a man of the, of the Pharisees, and this is what makes it powerful. A man of the Pharisees, one of those religious, hyper-religious Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi. What does rabbi mean? It means teacher. He recognizes a position about Jesus. Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So it wasn't all the Pharisees that rejected Jesus. It wasn't all of them that were hard-hearted and rebellious against the reality of who Jesus was. Yet Nicodemus, he recognized, he acknowledged. Let's look at John 7, 31. People from the crowds in general testified about Jesus. It says, yet many of the people believed in him. This is after a lot of miracles that Jesus had been doing. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So they're saying, this guy's doing so many signs. When, when, it, when the Messiah does come, I mean, is, is he really going to do more than this guy? Because maybe this guy is the Messiah. That's their logic right there. So even, even the crowds were recognizing he is the Messiah. I want to read this, John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And this is why Jesus is saying this is a testimony that's greater than the testimony of John. You can refute John and be hard-hearted against his testimony. You can refute my testimony, but my works declare that I am from God and that I am equal with God. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's the core of the whole book of John. You may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I, I, I love this verse, John twenty-one twenty-five. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose. I, love, I just love that language right there. It's kind of like, that's how we would talk. I suppose that the, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That is amazing, right? We, we have a few accounts in the Gospels of the miracles and the wonders that Jesus did. And John is saying, look, I suppose that if, if all the works that Jesus did while he was on the earth were written in books, the whole world itself could not contain the books that would have to be written amazing the powerful works of jesus testify that he is from god thought about this thought about this during my study i just want to say this this thought haven't really worked it through my head very well yet so i apologize before if it didn't come out right but you know i believe god does miracles today the miracle working god and we pray for miracles do you pray for miracles should always pray for miracles. But there has never been, and there will never be, 
a man that will have a gift of miracles and healing like Jesus. And why do you think that is? Because if somebody, if God did that and went around and gave somebody a gift to heal everybody that they ever went to, it'd be a false Messiah. They'd follow him. That's God. Only God has power without measure. Only God has miracle-working power without measure. So you come across somebody who says, hey, you give me money, you let me pray for you, you come to my crusade, and I'm going to pray for you, and you're going to get healed. Run. Turn around. Go. It's not, it's, it's not true. There's nobody has a monopoly on healing power. You know who has the, the monopoly on it? God. <laughs> we see through a glass darkly, dimly. One day we'll see clearly. One day we'll see. So what do we do when we, when we pray for miracles? We pray as Pastor Nay encouraged us to when we, when we talked about it a few weeks back, a couple months back. We plead, we, we cry out for the mercy of God. We say, God, you're in control. The healing business is up to you. And we're going to trust you. We're going to believe. And we, and we pray in the spirit of Esther. I didn't bring this out on Sunday. We pray in the spirit of Esther. And what Esther said at this, the end of her conversation with the servant that Mordecai sent, she, she agreed. She said, I'm going to the king. And what did she say? If I perish, I perish. We pray in the spirit of Esther. We say, Lord, you're sovereign. You're in control. I'm praying for a miracle. I'm believing for a miracle. But if not, I'm still going to trust you. That's, that's how we pray. Just a little side, sidebar, side note there. Amen. John 1 says this. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. In spite of the miracles, in spite of all the things, in spite of all the things that he did, many, many miracles, all the ones that couldn't even be written in all the books that would fill up the entire world, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. How tragic is that? How tragic is that? Let's look at the third witness. Third witness. Let's go back to the text, John 5, verse 32. Starting verse 32, it says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. (laughs) That's amazing. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. That is stunning right there. These are the Jews. These are God's people. These are the ones that know God. Should know God. Should believe in God. And he says you don't know God. You've never heard from God. You don't have his truth in your heart. Because you don't believe in the one whom he sent. And the third witness is the perfect father. The perfect father. This is such a strong indictment. He says, the perfect father has borne witness about me. He has testified about me. And you don't even know him. Because if you did know him, the proof would be, if you truly knew him, the proof would be that you would believe in me. You would believe in me. You know, think about this. Think about this idea. You know, my son, my, my children, they, they, they know me because I'm their father. I'm their father. And they could try to convince, somebody could try to convince them otherwise. That someone could try to change their opinion. But because they know me, because they're in relationship with me, they could try to, someone could try to convince them that I'm not good, that I don't love them, that I don't have their best interest at heart. Sometimes they may feel that way. <laughs> I'm just going to tell, Joel's not here. Don't tell anybody this. Mark, edit this out of the audio. <laughs> so Joel is 11 years old. Total sidebar, comedy relief. Um, so Joel was being disrespectful. Was it last night? Yeah. And so like, I'm just going to spank him. <laughs> he's 11. He's almost as big as me. I'm a small guy. And I haven't spanked him in, in, a, in a while because he's a, he's a really sensitive kid. And so I go to try to spank him and and he just started laughing. <laughs> and it, and, and I, it was like I was in this time warp. I went back to when I was 11, 12 years old, and my mom spanked me, and I just started laughing. We both ended up on the floor laughing. I was like, oh, my goodness. 
this is really happening right now. And he said, Daddy, that didn't hurt. I said, well, I can make it hurt. And then I thought, I thought, I'm going to break. I'm going to hurt him. I can't really do this. He's just, it's not, so yeah, use other methods. He's like, spanking works, right? When they're two and three, you know, you swat them a little bit and, and it diverts them. Works for some of them. <laughs> it didn't work for all of our children. But anyway, uh, you could try to convince my kids, back to the message, try to convince my kids that I don't love them. But you know, this morning, Joel greeted me this morning. And the first thing he came, this is so precious, he came up and he hugged me. He said, Daddy, I did my morning devotion. I just want to let you know. And he hugged me and he said, he said, I'm, I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year. <laughs> I started in Genesis. And it was like, it was good. Like I never attempted to even spank him. It was precious. Right? You could try to convince him that I don't love him, but he knows me. And this is kind of the, the, the opposite logic that Jesus is trying to say. If you believed the Father, if you really knew him, you would know what he believes about me. You would know that he sent me. You would know it if you really were in relationship. It's the same with our kids, same with people who really know us. They still didn't believe the perfect father. And he indicted them and said that you don't even know God. And they pride themselves in knowing God because they came from God. They were God's special people. How, how did the father testify publicly about the son? He did it twice, right? Where people could actually hear. Matthew 3, verse 17. This is at Jesus' baptism. John baptizes Jesus, and behold, as he came up out of the water, behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. A voice came from heaven. You you would think word would travel. (laughs) You would think word would get around, and they would understand. Wait, 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 you mean like at the baptism, he came up out the water, and this voice came from heaven? You would think these religious Jews would have got the memo. Public testimony from the Father. Dove descended upon him. Spirit descended upon him as a dove. Matthew 17, here's another second occurrence in the Gospels of Jesus publicly declaring the deity of Christ and who he is. And this is the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. He was in his glorious state before them. And his face shone like the sun. Can you imagine? And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, this, it would be really, it's really good we're here. Like, like seriously, I don't know how the process is, but it is good that we're here. That's what I think he said. If you wish, if you think it's a good idea, I'll make three tents right here. One for you, one for Moses, one for, for your other buddy, Elijah. Like, we'll just, we'll set it up right here, and we will never leave. This will be our place of worship. I mean, this is, this is what's going on here. This is the amazing glory of God being shown to Peter, James, and John, the transfigured Christ. And if that doesn't top it, while he was still speaking, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. The perfect father is the the perfect witness, the greatest witness to who Jesus is. He testified to who, who, who his son is and was. Jesus rebukes the unbelieving Jews by telling them that they don't know the father, this father, this perfect father who testified publicly to who he is. Let's look at the fourth witness. The fourth witness as we continue on in John 5. Look at verses 39 through 47. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. But there is one who will accuse you. His name is Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's a lot right there. That's a lot. What's Jesus saying here? 
The fourth witness is the sacred writings. It's Holy Scripture. It's the Old Testament. Specifically, the, the Pentateuch. First five books of the Old Testament. Speaking of the law. He's speaking of Moses' writings. And, and in Moses' writings, there are prophecies and testimonies about the coming Messiah. And they would have seen that. They would have known that. They would have seen where Jesus would have been born. They would have seen the prophecies and the words of Moses. And they should have connected the dots, especially the religious Pharisees. They should have gotten it. And he was saying, you search the scriptures. You search the sacred writings. You search the law. You search Moses. Because you think in them, in the scriptures, you have eternal life. And I'm telling you that the scriptures point to me. This is where eternal life is found. You're placing your hope for eternal life in the sacred writings. But the sacred writings point to me as the only hope. John MacArthur's commentary on John says this about this section. Merely knowing the facts of scripture without fully embracing them in the heart and acting on them will not bring the blessings of salvation. Merely knowing and, and understanding, knowing what the word says about, about Jesus is not enough. You have to believe it and you have to act on it in faith. And these men, these Jews, these men and women were unwilling to act on the knowledge that they had and believe in faith that Jesus was God. They were unwilling. This is so sad because they, 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 these weren't immoral people. These, now, they, they, were, they were hypocritical, yes, and Jesus exposed their hypocrisy, but they didn't go about trying to live these crazy lifestyles of sin. They loved the law of God, especially the Pharisees. They loved the law of God, and they missed it. They missed the hope of Scripture. They missed the hope of the prophecies. They missed, the, they missed Jesus as Messiah in the writings, in the Word of God, in the Old Testament. They just missed it. They placed their hope in the wrong place. And God was shouting through sacred writing, shouting through the scriptures, it's me, it's Jesus, it's, it's him. And they couldn't see it. And this statement about fully embracing the, in the heart the word of God, this statement describes the unbelieving Jews perfectly. They didn't do that. They didn't have an internal heart change. And that's, you know, that's the heart of Christianity, Right? And we're not here after head knowledge. We're not here just to be puffed up with knowledge about who God is. And it doesn't really impact our life. That does us nothing. If the, if the knowledge you gain from the word of God doesn't transform your hands and your mouth and your feet. The way you speak, the way you walk, the way you talk. What you do. Then you have gained the knowledge in vain. But the knowledge that you gain if it is coupled with faith and it takes root in your heart and transformation takes place, then you will be a powerful impact in your world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the heart of what Jesus is trying to say to the Pharisees. The fourth witness is the word of God that you so passionately love. How many of you have ever met somebody that, that on the outside, it looks like they love the word of God and they want to know the word of God, but you, but you look at their life and, 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 and something doesn't line up, something, something doesn't match. And it means they've not really come to know Jesus yet. Because if you've come to know Jesus, if you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, there will be heart change. Are you, are you, are you going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Are you still going to make mistakes? Yes, you will. But there will be a change of desire in your life. It's like at, at staff meeting this morning, uh, Pastor Matt Samohal was talking about what happens at salvation. Because this is what we were talking about. We are talking about this section of scripture. And I loved how he said it. He said, when you get saved, you just start loving everybody. Right? So where does love come from? It comes from, from our heart. It comes from God changing our heart and our emotions. And that's, that's the heart change. So the word of God that we hear, coupled with faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we just love everybody. If that, that's, the, that's the fruit of genuine salvation. This is what the, these Jews were lacking. Commentary uh, uh, if called the Gospel According to John by Leon Morris says this. If these people who profess to be Moses' disciples 
who honored Moses' writings as sacred scripture, who gave an almost superstitious reverence to the letter of the law, if these men did not really believe the things that Moses has written and which were the constant objects of their study, then how could they possibly believe the words of Jesus? How could they possibly? They were not going to because they wouldn't even believe Moses and his words. The law was never intended. This is where they got it backwards. The law of God was never intended to be the means of salvation. Just understanding the law and knowing the word of God and his law was never intended to be the means of salvation. And that's where they got it mixed up. The law was meant to be what? Galatians 3 says this about the law. 23 through 25. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was what? What's the purpose of the law? To be our tutor, to be our teacher, to to what? To bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, not not by works, by faith. But after faith comes, we no longer are under a teacher, under a tutor. So the purpose of the law is to show us the impossibility of us keeping the law and for us to throw our hands up and say, God, I need you. I surrender. I can't do this on my own. You You know the standard if you were going to try to be right with God through the keeping of the law for these Jews, was one mistake and you were guilty of breaking what? The entire law. That's Matthew 6. You guys remember the flow of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus tells the Jews that were listening, you've heard it said in the law, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Right? But he said, I say to you, uh, I'm giving you a new law, I'm giving you something new, a new standard. He said, If you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in his heart. You didn't pull the trigger yet. You just have hate in your heart. You're guilty. You think, hey, if I just don't sleep around, I'm pretty good. God's going to be okay with me. Jesus said, if you have lust in your heart after someone that's not your spouse, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So these Jews, Jesus tells them in Matthew 6, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You're not going to get into heaven. And then he says, the standard is, my standard is greater than the scribes and Pharisees. I'm after your heart. I'm after the intentions and motivations of your heart. And then he culminates the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 6, 47. Go home and read it. He culminates it. He says, therefore, based upon everything I told you, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what, what, what does that tell us tonight? Good luck. Right? (laughs) You don't get to pass go and collect $200 in that system. You are out of luck. Right. Because it's impossible. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell the Jews in Matthew 6. That's what he's trying to tell them here. You're missing the point. You're thinking the law is the way to righteousness. I'm telling you, it's through faith in believing in me and who I am. It's impossible to be right with God through the law. The law was there to show you that it's impossible. If you're going to be right by the law, you've got to be perfect. And so we know that's impossible. So what do we do? We say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in you. And that, my friends, my family, is the crux of the gospel. That's the gospel message. It's by faith. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible cannot be properly understood. And here's the key right here. The law of God, the Bible, Scripture, Holy Scripture, cannot be properly understood apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes in, he illuminates the Word of God, takes these, what looks like to a lot of people, just rules and regulations, and I can't do this and I can't do that, and they see it through the lens of law. When the Holy Spirit comes up, comes in, and opens the eyes of someone's understanding, and they see the glorious beauty of the gospel, then their heart's prepared for faith. It's got to be the Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, I'm going to ask a question. Because this is such a sobering section, right? Rejection after rejection. These four witnesses, they're bulletproof witnesses. The, the word of God, the, the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. The Father speaking from heaven. The miracles of Jesus. John the Baptist testifying to these Jews that, that Jesus was God. That he was the Messiah. Why do people? Why did they reject Jesus? And why do people reject Jesus even today? Why do people reject Jesus? Okay, it's good. It's good. Chuck, Miss Diane, say one of you speak. 
Exactly, right? It's good. Yep. Anybody else? Yes, Timmy. That's good right there. They haven't seen him. It's a good, that's a good way to phrase it. They haven't seen him. Anybody else? It's not, it's not a trick question. It's pretty easy. Yeah, it's good. Well, so when you have a question, what's the right place to go to? The Word of God and Brother Chuck nailed it. We'll start in John three 16. We'll get a running start. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the gospel. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. What's he saying there? Look, I didn't send my son to kill everybody, right? The unbelievers, they, can misconstrue, they misconstrue that scripture. And they say, see, you can't judge me. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge. But let's, let's keep reading here. It says, I didn't send my son to, in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him because condemnation is coming. Right? God knew that condemnation is coming. So he sent Jesus into the world to save the world. Because we deserve to be condemned and judged. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Everyone who is in a state of unbelief of Jesus Christ is condemned already. They're in a state of condemnation. So when they tell you God said not to judge, you should say, well, you're already judged. You're in a state of condemnation because you are rejecting the only hope of salvation. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That right there is the crux and the core of why people reject Jesus. Ultimately, it's because they love the darkness more than the light. They don't want to, they don't want to believe. And there's various reasons, there's nuances to, to all of this. But at the core and crux of it, it's because they don't, as you guys all said, they don't like their agenda messed up. They want to do what they want to do. They, you know, they love the darkness more than the light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So just real quickly, last question here. So people reject Jesus because they love the darkness and more than the light. And it says that their works are evil. Why, why are unbelievers' works evil? Why are their works evil? Okay. All right. I think you're, I think you're getting at something. You're getting at something there too. All right. Full of sin, yeah. They're not saved. You're getting at something there too. <laughs> right? That's right. And, and he has them blinded. That's what it says in Corinthians. The God of this age has blinded them. Yeah. So, so why, what does, what does Scripture say as a reason? I think, I think you guys are all hitting on something here that's kind of at the core of what Scripture says. Why are unbelievers' works evil? Why, if you're an unbeliever, are your works evil? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this, And you were dead. You're speaking to Christians. You used to be an unbeliever. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in, 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 sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit of that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we're talking about that too. The devil's at work. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature. That's the key phrase. Were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So why are unbelievers' works evil? Because before we were Christians, we were of the world and we were by nature, we're all by nature born with the sinful nature, right? So even the good deeds of the unrighteous people are evil because they're not done in faith, right? Are good deeds bad for, un, 
believers to do? No, that's good that unbelievers would do good things, right? It's good. It's positive. That's good. But if it's not done in faith, it merits them nothing. It doesn't earn them any standing with God. So good works, bad works, anything in an unbeliever's life that is done, that's not done in faith, their works are evil. It's only whenever you're a believer, your good works truly have kingdom impact is whenever you are surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So sinners aren't sinners because they sin. Sinners sin because they're sinners. We sin because we are a sinner. We don't become sinners because we do bad things. We do bad things because we're bad, right? I can say it many different ways. That's, that's the condition of mankind. And the hope is not the law. The hope is not any, the hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's the final conclusion? Final conclusion is this, 1 John 5, 9, 9 through 12. If we receive the testimony of men, this is John, same author here, different book. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is a testimony of God, that he has born concerning his son. This is what God is saying about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. That is the gospel. The gospel is inward, not outward. You have the testimony in you if you're a believer. Your heart is changed. Opposite is true. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's the conclusion. And my conclusion is John 5, 40. Yet, yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's the tragedy right there. And this is why. This verse right here. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life is the reason We go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, commanding them to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is why we go, because people are yet still refusing to come to him that they may have life. That's why. That's why we go. What did Jesus say? The thief came to steal and to kill. But I have come that you may have life, and that more abundantly. Amen? That's our motivation. Lord, I thank you for your truth, for your word. There are still, though, there are those all around us that are not coming to you. And you have life for them. You have forgiveness for them and hope and peace and reconciliation. You have healing for their lives and their marriages. And you want them to spend eternity with you and, and they're lost in darkness. And so this is why we go, this is why we are ambassadors for you, imploring others, be reconciled to God. And I pray, Lord, that this would be the passion of our hearts. This would be what we not only believe, but what we live. I pray that it would be the driving force of our life and of our church. And that I pray that as we live these truths out in our everyday life, that people will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Love, I love you guys, and we'll see you. Well, I won't see you on Sunday. I'll be holding my baby. <laughs>